Hello. Hello. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Industry Tactics. Friendly Rich here from the website FriendlyRich.com. Hope you're enjoying the new recording I just put out with David Sate and Uneel. That's available on the website along with all my other recordings books and other fun stuff so stay connected let me know what you think of that release and more coming soon on the podcast today a great chat with i've been trying to get him on the podcast for a while gordon monahan we talk about all things i mean we get into his early years in germany his uh his music education we talk john cage his wife laura and her work Throwing Pianos Off a Cliff, uh, what a talk. We talk about the Funny Farm in Meaford, Ontario, Electric Eclectics. Get into this. It's ve- very exciting to have him on, the Governor General Award-winning musician, sound artist, pianist, and so much more. A delightful chat, episode 103 with Gordon Monahan. Enjoy. been a long time coming welcome to industry tactics gordon monahan nice to be here yeah thrilled to have you on um i have so much to ask you i just want to kind of get into it we've got about an hour here i want to dive into your incredible career where would you start if you're if you're if you're kind of like maybe you could start with like how you fell in love with sound and and you know how you found your voice in all of this well it goes back a long way i guess because um you know i studied like a lot of people you know connection to music you play an instrument when you're a kid and i took piano lessons played in bands in high school and uh but i always i i didn't i i don't think i could have articulated it at that time but I can go back and see how I always had this connection to sort of experiencing sound um, in a kind of pure sense um, outside the realm of music, although I didn't uh, conceive of it at that time, of course, you know, it wasn't until later when I studied music at university that um, I came across it. and where was that? Like, where did you grow up and where did you end up going to university? I, I grew up in mostly in Ottawa. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And then I um, I did go to University of Ottawa for a couple of years, studied science. And 
I found out uh -huh. to my astonishment that you could study music at university. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah. I, um, anyway, I, I won't go into long detail about you fluked it. Upon, you fluked upon it then from, from the route of science, which adds up yeah. when I look at the way you do what you do. You know? Right. It turns out that it's a good combination. Um, I didn't realize that at the time, of course, but, um, yeah. yeah. I, so I, anyway, I, I switched out of, Going to University of Ottawa, I got accepted to music at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. Okay, um, which turned out to be a good choice uh, in the end. I, yeah, I didn't like it very much my first year, but that's just because yeah, Sackville is a small little town, and sure, kind of hard to <laughs> go to yeah. uh, move to a one traffic light town, you know. But anyway, uh, actually, it was a, a really good thing. It worked out great. Spent four years yeah. there. And so anyway, I think it was um, at the end of my second year at Mount Allison um, studying in music history. And the professor, who was actually a very good professor for in a traditional sense, uh, yeah. the professor who taught music history, um, but he hated contemporary music. And uh, he told us that. And, and you know, he... You know, you go through two years of music history and, and you start in the beginning, then you Baroque and Renaissance and classical mm -hmm. and romantic and so on. And then you get to the 20th century. And as a university, they're obliged to teach 20th century music, right? It's mm -hmm. part of the mm -hmm. curriculum. It has to be. Otherwise, they cannot grant degrees. So, so he leaves it to the very end of the second semester of the second year. And then he's like, okay, here we go. Uh, <laughs> Crash up until now, yeah. we've talked about music. And, you know, basically music stopped in 1911 when Schoenberg yes. started composing the, with the 12-tone right. system. Right. And we're like, yeah, I don't know about that, but okay, move on. And then he just, he says, uh, you know, I don't want to teach this, but I have to. So we're going to go as quickly as we can through the 20th century. Great, great approach. Yeah. Great approach. And then he says, you know, <laughs> and then there's this comedian who lives in New York City who calls himself a composer. His name is John Cage. And he composes silent music, you know. Right, right. And I'm like, right. oh, yeah, right. I've, I've heard about Cage. But this sounds really, really interesting because he was, he was trying to embarrass Cage and his yeah. work to us. And he just yeah. embellished it and made it sound way more interesting than I'd ever heard anyone describe it. I love it. So. I love how you're like, you know, it probably wasn't reverse psychology, which would be great. But like, needless to say, it made you more intrigued. Yeah. Uh, and, okay. you know, and then of course, uh, I went immediately to the music library and they had a lot of cages books because they, they yeah. had to right it's all part of the curriculum satisfying criteria right. and so i checked out all of cages books i read them in a day or two consumed yeah, it all I and, I, that. and then i i think i did my first piece of sound art two days later <laughs> fuck that's incredible so, man i love it yeah. i love it i i see it and i i've lived that too right. i've lived that like second year university kind of Maybe it's the right time in your life for your brain to just be like, There's that. 
you're hungry and like and boom when you know you discover like charles ives yeah. or like john cage or some some of these composers that i think just like change it all for yeah. you I was, that that was one of my questions for you like who changed the game for yeah. you I, I guess you could say cage and, and many others yeah and you mentioned way. charles ives too like i, I actually uh, played um um I can't remember now, Charles Ives' piece. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I, I got into doing uh, contemporary music for piano, you know, because I was studying okay. piano. That was my main instrument. Okay. And, uh, you know, I struggled with the classical repertoire because I hadn't studied piano lessons all through my high school years. Yeah. So I went back to it in order to get in, audition and get into school. But... I was far behind my fellow students um, because they had studied all through yeah. high school and I hadn't. You know, so yeah, right. I was sort yeah. of like I could get by, but I, I struggled with it through my whole four years. Um, but I, going out after the end of the second year, I suddenly started doing contemporary music and that I could do really well. Yeah. somehow i don't know why but i remember my, yeah. my piano teacher being like shocked like hey how can you play this really well and you can't play beethoven properly right yeah. right, right, right. i don't know maybe i just get this part <laughs> more than i get the beethoven or something that's so interesting so. and when do you when do you pick up composition in the mix of all this oh like i studied composition that was my my major so you okay. know you you have to choose a major, right? You do either composition. Not many people at Mount Allison did composition in those days. Who did you study with? Who um, Michael Miller, <clears throat> Professor Michael Miller. Um, okay. He was pretty uh -huh. cool because he kind of just let me do whatever I wanted. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I got more out of uh, reading about what was going on in new york and, yeah. and toronto and everywhere else that, yeah. any any place that you could get information about in those days in the 70s you know yeah and being yeah. down in new brunswick you were yeah. pretty yeah. far yeah. out yeah. of the yeah. loop yeah. down there you had to, you had to be really hungry and you had to you had to seek it out yeah right? there was a scene of course in the maritimes in halifax they had something happening in the 70s you know at, at okay. uh, nova scotia college of art and design right. i mean right. At, right at that time they had a really progressive german um i believe he was the the uh, director of the of the college uh casper yeah. koenig who is a pretty famous uh contemporary art uh, curator okay but he's the person who brought in steve reich and yeah. um wow. robert frank and people to do to do stuff at at nascat although okay. uh, you know but i i didn't see much of that i remember going out to halifax to see a screening by robert frank um uh -huh. and that and finding out oh steve Wright did this whole project in nascat and blah 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 okay but okay. Uh, it's just hearing about that was enough you know yeah you heard yeah. about it and then you tracked some paperwork down yeah. and found a book somewhere yeah and, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, and then yeah, coming man. up to Toronto and seeing stuff at the music gallery during breaks, you know, like at Christmas and spring break. Okay. 
Okay. Is that how you connect with, with people like James Tenney or later? Yeah. Just, through the music. Yeah, I can't connect the dots there, but I see him. I see all of this in your work as you're coming up, right? Yeah. I, I feel like that. That was after connects. that came after I, um, cause okay. I finished school in 1980. I moved to Toronto. Okay. Uh, it took me about a year to kind of get to do my first performance in Toronto. Um, Wow. And then once was once it? that happened, then it was just the ball kept rolling, and that was after yeah. that I met Jim Tenney, and I performed with him. Okay, um, met uh, John Oswald, and uh, yeah, all the other people. <clears throat> yeah, all, all the other people. Yeah. I mean, it's a long line of weirdos, and I want to I want to use my time wisely with you because I, you're just such an inspiration to the way you have crew have led a creative life and and i i just i look at every aspect of you from what what the fuck are you wearing right now what is that a leather, leather jacket uh, and a leather it's jacket. a, it's a it's vinyl. leather that's an insult yeah some type of vinyl ac- acrylic yeah to uh to uh the weird uh fucking doll head behind you to the are you are we do we find you in the funny farm right now yeah. where are you yeah i'm at yeah. the farm yeah yeah I'm, uh, He's at the funny farm. In my little and, room uh, here where I I work, especially during beautiful. the winter months because it's in the house. So okay. It's heated. Okay. If I have to okay. do a bigger project, I can do it in my studio where I have a wood stove. But for our, for our listeners who don't know, Gordon has this beautiful space up in Meaford, Ontario, the funny farm, where he runs the Electric Eclectics Festival on an annual basis, along with my but wife, so much more. Along with my wife Laura Kikalka, yes. we share the farm. Yeah. We live together, and she's actually the one who creates the Funny Farm as an ongoing oh. project. I just help out. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Um, what a yeah! Like when? Okay, so I'll, I'll back up. So you you come out of university you're you start you're, you start producing your own works at some point and when did when do you feel like has it always just always felt like a career for you like since you got out of university yeah i um, guess yeah pretty yeah. much i mean yeah. of course in the early days i had to work at uh, other jobs but right fortunately right. they were music related so you know i uh I worked as a sound engineer at radio CJRT before it became jazz radio. It was a okay. classical based, um, public broadcasting station in Toronto. So that was my first full-time job, but that was uh, full-time jobs don't suit me very well. Um, yeah, because it sucks up all your time and energy. And yeah, know, so that, that I, I quit that after, but, I think 10 months and okay. um, because I, I then had got a job teaching piano lessons um, in Toronto okay. Okay. at um, the community school, the university settlement school, which is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, crazy, crazy that you were involved with that. Um, my grandma and my uncle did a lot of time at the university settlement house. Yep. Um, so maybe at that point, time the 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 odds would be that you might have crossed paths with what were, them what were they doing there uh I, th- I i'd have to look into it um i think working at like the pool area yeah. or just in general they were in right. the mix with university settlement house yeah i used to use the pool there 
swim there. And wow, that's good to go. know. I'll, I'll just think that you cross paths. Yeah, I taught but, there um, for four cool. years. Uh, which it's was a great, great place, eh? It was, yeah. yeah, and it was really, really practical to have that job. Um, and uh, I also worked part-time as a waiter at the AGO. Oh Which yeah. Is right. Okay. Beside. Right there. Yes. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, I would do maybe three shifts a week as a waiter at lunch. So easy yeah. enough. I like the part-time jobs are great because yeah, it's yeah. three or four hours a few days a week, and yeah, you yeah. know, and then and then I would um, finish that at like two or three in the afternoon and then I'd have a one hour break. And then at four o'clock I'd start teaching piano lessons until seven. Wow. Wow. Anyway, I did that for and a few what years. Was, what was one of your bigger first works that you remember landing that really kind of you felt put you on that path to weird? Uh, you mean um, pieces that I composed, you mean? Yeah, or, uh, I mean, maybe maybe an installation or, uh, yeah, yeah, just notable works, yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> I guess the first piece I really started working on was um, Piano Mechanics, which is a yeah. solo piano piece. Um, and then, you know, the other piece I did right at the same time was Speaker Swinging. So, like, those are sort oh. of like these two pieces that I still do. And um, I learned a lot by doing those pieces and figuring yeah. out how to yeah. develop them over the years. And um, yeah, those were really the first two original pieces of mine. I mean, I had done a few other things as well, but not certainly on, not on that level of... Um, where where was that presented? Like something like speakers uh, um, swinging. The very first performance was at Mercer Union Gallery, okay. which is an artist-run space in Toronto. Um, yeah, nice. It wasn't a big enough space to do a full uh, version of the piece <laughs> without hurting someone. But it was yeah, a good yeah. place to do the first try, and then realize, oh, what I really need to do is this and that. And, so then the yeah, second yeah. version of it, which was really the first time I did it with three performers doing with live uh, oscillators, was um, wow. the, the, the first one was at Mercer Union was the summer of 1982. Okay. And then um, I'm quite sure that that fall of 82, I did it with the full uh, version, which was what took place at Glendon College, which is in the north oh, yeah. end of um, Toronto. Um, I forget what you call that neighborhood, but that's Mississauga. Well, no, uh, no, it's or no, no, it's uh, uptown Toronto. Okay, okay, um, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. It's more like north North Toronto. Yeah, yeah, uh, Mount Pleasant, Mount Pleasant. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it. Lawrence, okay. roughly area. Um, okay, got but it, got at it. that time, um, John Siddall, mm -hmm. who is a, another contemporary composer uh, colleague of mine, uh -huh. John now lives in Vancouver, but in those days he lived in Toronto, and he was curating right um, a music series, a contemporary music series at Glennon College. Okay, so oh, he okay. In okay. invited me to uh, do that piece there. 
Right on, right on. I look at, I, I look at, um, you know, I, I look at your path. It's so intriguing to me, so inspiring. I, I see like um, the way you treat sound in, in a piece, like something like Dollhouse that I experienced right. in the last four or five years. Yeah. And I thought, holy shit, this is on the cusp of, you know, with, with your treatment of water and, you know, just there, there's a, you and Bill Coleman kind of bringing that piece to life. It was on the edge of the building could have burned down or, and you would have been smiling. I, I just think it, that would have been part of it. You know, like it had the sense of like destruction almost in it right. uh, in a, in a constructive way. Yeah. But um, a lot of that is talk about that. That's, that's throughout a lot of your work. Yeah, A lot like of that is playing of, with illusion um, to suggest to people that things are going to fall. It, we're fucked. <laughs> it's all yeah. intentionally done to evoke yeah. the sense of danger to yeah. the audience, which creates that kind of tension, which yeah. uh, is sometimes hard to captivate. Um, works better in certain spaces than in other spaces, but generally that piece, yeah. was, that piece was conceived from the very beginning to evoke that kind of energy. And so we had to figure out how to do that. Um, I'm still trying to digest what yeah. I took in. I just thought it was such a, uh, I think I told you both at the end of it, that it was such an intersection of brilliance from your end on the sound side and, and Bill's end on, on the dance side. Yeah. It just, I, you know, blown away by that piece. Great. Yeah. Thank you. No, that was a, uh, we've, we work well together and we've, we've been, uh, developing some other work since then we still oh, we good. still do dollhouse um when we get invited to um, yeah yeah you know we've we toured it around a fair amount um, yeah yeah meanwhile we've uh developed a new performance piece um which is using brainwave interactive brainwave technology oh and, wow and um Bill wears a EEG headset, wireless, and transmits to yeah. me, and then we're, okay. we're uh, translating that into different forms of sound, um, basically picking up on you know what Alvin Lussier was doing in the '60s yeah. with it, and David Rosenboom, Richard Teitelbaum uh, in the '70s, uh, late '60s and '70s, also exploring all this um, yeah. stuff. In those days, it was much more cumbersome of course because they were right. doing it with analog synthesizers right right which, uh, everything's right. been simplified now we can we can recreate that although uh, one of the elements of the performance uses a midi disclavier piano uh-huh uh, disclavier um yeah so we've got bill's brain waves playing the piano oh crazy amazing and there's another amazing. part where he's playing um a snare drum and cymbals and he's tap dancing with it. And now I'm not, I'm not, uh, well versed in brainwave. Um, uh, like how, so when you say Bill's playing the, the piano with his brainwaves, yeah. are you, are you putting uh mouse traps on his nipples again to get like a, to, to evoke like a, Oh, he, now he's in an alpha state and all of a sudden the, the piano starts playing quickly yeah. or how does that work? Yeah. There's no mouse traps in this particular Okay. Piece. But um, we have done a version of uh, if we're if we're in a 
a venue where we can't get a, a Yamaha Disclavier piano, um, yeah, then we have to delete that part of the performance oh, in that case kidding. and bring in maybe something from Dollhouse. So we might do okay. a, a, oh, a cool. mousetrap sequence for that, separate from it's the modular part. Yeah, neat. yeah, neat. we neat. kind of cut and paste depending on the, the circumstances. But uh, yeah. the way it works with the brainwave um, performance is um, I receive the brainwaves live transmitted into the USB serial port of the Mac computer, and then that gets ported into Maximus P. Mm -hmm. And I have several different... Maximus P patches with different functions and purposes for taking those original raw brainwaves and then outputting them into a variety of different forms of sound. One of them being um, sending out streams of MIDI notes that can then play the piano. Um, so you got to take that. No, I, I think uh, Laura will pick that up. I'm just going to turn the light on here. It's starting to get a bit dark now. Okay. Um, oh, great. There you are. So, so the, the, um, but Bill, where's the performance in that? Is he, is he, he as he's moving around? Yeah. It's, it's, it's the brainwaves. It's evident what's going on in terms of not always. The, that, that translation. Not, not, always, always. not always. I understand it. Because, yeah. you know, we've been yeah. working with the system and I know what it's doing and I'm seeing them coming in. I know what That's to expect. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, an observer um, yeah. won't necessarily get the whole thing. But uh, there are parts that are obvious and other parts that are not. So there's like, you know, if if Bill sits still and meditates... Then you get yeah. these pure alpha waves. That's it. Right? Okay, okay. Got it, got uh, so it. That's you get what a, I was a stronger uh, amplitude alpha wave and steady, okay. steadier. Um, okay. And then, um, for instance, we do this part of the piece in the early part where that's what he's doing. He's in a yeah. chair, he's concentrating, yeah. and then okay. got um, it. we're able to then send um like basically transpose the the alpha waves which are f occurring in the 8 to 12 hertz eight to 16 go. hertz roughly um, spectrum uh you want to get that up into more audible range so uh there are three distinctly different ways of doing that I won't get into the technical details, okay, but okay. there are three distinct ways of getting them into uh, multiple octaves, for instance. Wow. Wow. Uh, wow. Up into different frequencies that you split into two and then kind of microtune with each other. That's uh, fun. Yeah. So That's fun. We're doing that, and then but, he's also able to spin them around in a four-channel sound system. Holy shit. Yeah. Holy shit. And control the stage so, lights at the same time. It. Really? Is this is is this what's this piece called? Can you Sounds of Mind that? and Body. Oh, there's a amazing. there's a excerpt of video on. Okay, um, I'll on check that Vimeo. out. Vimeo. 
Okay. And if you want to learn more, gentle listeners of Gordon's work, go to gordonmonahan.com. Yeah. Um, I look, you, you say you, you graduate from university in 1980 and you're, you're talking some pretty high tech shit here just now. Are, how have you managed through these years, through your career to date? to stay sharp when it comes to like professional development on the, the simple thing of like just tech understanding technology. And has, has that ever felt like something that like, Oh shit, I'm, I'm falling behind. Or have you always been kind of on that? Have you always been kind of staying sharp on that end? To some degree? Yes, but not completely. I mean, um, yeah. I've sort of forced myself to learn max programming, for instance. Um, okay. But that was self-taught, self-taught or how have you, how, how, mostly, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, when I first started using Max, I I couldn't make a complex patch at all. So I used to have to get Uh people to do it for me. Um, and that's good and bad because, you know, you get a programmer who can do it and they, it can be very time consuming and it costs money because you can't expect someone to do it for free. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, yeah. if you don't articulate exactly what it is that you need, you won't get what you want okay. from a third party unless yeah. you're collaborating with that person. But I'm usually not. Yeah. I'm usually getting them to, can you do this to do that sort of thing. But okay. then, you know, and then they, yeah. they produce this patch and you go, oh, can you change it to do this or that, you know? And, Eventually, you had to learn it. Yeah, I think the first uh, maybe the first eight or nine years of working with Max through the nineties, um, yeah. other people were doing it for me. As they did it, though, I was starting to learn it myself. Got it. Got it. Like got I it. could see what they were doing, and I could make little changes to things. Yeah. And then, yeah, uh, I remember a project coming along where I needed to have this new Max patch running um for in a three or four month deadline and Mm -hmm. the two main guys that i used to work with were not available they were really busy with these other projects so i just said okay i'm gonna have to do it myself and i just started right on on. it worked and then i've just gone from there and now i can make a well you know you learn certain tricks that you can repeat and reapply in many different circumstances. Um, yeah. It's the same yeah. with music, right? Like right. you learn a few right. tricks and you keep reapplying the same methodology in different ways right. to create different manifestations of the end product, let's say. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's that part of the technology. And then, of course, yeah, computers, you know, in the 80s, if you wanted to use computers, you had to be a programmer. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't want to do that, so I didn't really work with computers at all. I guess the first time I really used computers with video editing mm-hmm. on tape at Charles Street mm-hmm. Video in Toronto. Um, yeah. Because you had to use a computer screen to type in the numbers and edit with the time code or whatever, but that wasn't really using a computer. It was just using... There was computer I mean, interface controlling the the tape machines, but you know that's what an evolution from that to 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 now. Well, and, yeah, and, yeah, 
you know, the collaborations you're a part of with people like Bill and I think of others you've collaborated with, like how, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like the art of collaboration and the, the family that you've managed to build of really experimental, I, I call them, I'm saying weirdos, but just like top notch experimentalists across the world that you've managed to have these, you know, what's exciting about, you mentioned Bill earlier is going back, like, yeah, you you did that project and now there's another one and it's an evolution yeah. of the, like these long-term relationships that you have with other collaborators, what that's meant for you. I guess Bill is the longest co- term collaborator I have worked with. Um, wow. Because I, I must say, I don't collaborate a lot. I, uh-huh. I do a little bit. Um, uh-huh. And different projects are collaborative projects and others are not, you know? Yeah, I feel like... So, sure, sure. I've worked, for instance, I mean, with my wife, Laura Kikauka, on certain projects, but those are outside, usually, of the realm of of experimental music or sound art. Usually, it's something else. Okay. Uh, doing some projects in Berlin, creating spaces... Yeah doing can you talk about that because i hear the stories i've heard of this place the the glowing pickle. pickle yeah are like you tried to get out of there you tried to, at one point this is the what i heard about your time in berlin right is that you tried to get out but you were like i mean as you are in canada a national treasure and they're like no man you can't leave we're just gonna keep the space as a museum well is that the way that went down? No. Because <laughs> um, if it was anything like the funny farm, I would say preserve was this place. much more so, but on a much more different so. level. It was it was a electronic surplus store is what it was. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it, it it's a bit of a long story. So what happened was we moved to Berlin in 1992 for uh-huh. one year. I, I had a grant, uh, artist in residence okay. grant, to mm-hmm. be in Berlin for a year. It's an international artist in residence program called the DAAD, mm-hmm. and um, they give you. A, it's very well endowed. You know, they give you a really great um, honorarium, and they give you an apartment mm-hmm. to live in, and, and then they give you a studio, and they give you mm-hmm. a budget to do a production of some kind, and you know, it's amazing. It's one of the best grants in the world. Huh. <laughs> and uh, so the plan was 1992, 1993, and then we were going to leave because at that time we were living in New York City in Brooklyn. We had a nice okay. space in Brooklyn. And uh, we also had the farm, but it was a different farm. It was oh. about 20 kilometers away from where we are now. But oh, that yeah, farm okay. was a, a house-sitting situation oh, got it, got uh, it. through Laura's parents and some Latvians who had bought that place. And so Laura moved in there for free and lived uh-huh. there on and off for 10 years. Okay. Uh, not bad free rent, you know, and, sure. uh, but at that time I had got this place in Brooklyn. So when we got together, we were going back and forth between Brooklyn and, and okay. Okay. Southern Ontario. And, um, then Berlin came up, went to Berlin. And then I guess it was within a few months of arriving in Berlin was like, we're going to stay here a bit longer than we planned uh-huh. <laughs> because it was amazing, you know, because the wall had what come down 
a couple of nice. years earlier and it was still just raw and stunning uh, how you know uh, unusual wow. it was yeah, and um talk about free you know like you get free space in in east berlin and uh usually with free electricity too <laughs> wow. no wow. not usually any heat mind you but um you find so that's what that's 90 90 1992 yeah so wow. uh, what happened was when we arrived in berlin in the summer of 1992 mm -hmm. um we both work with electronics and at that time using a lot of electronic surplus so remember the old days in toronto with um active surplus sure so sure. the fantastic electronic surplus store that was in Toronto and was really like a mainstay for the um, Toronto and Southern Ontario um, media art scene. Right, right. You know, because that was where you right. could get your electronic stuff. Yeah, and yeah. And surplus stuff. And so that doesn't exist anymore. But um, when we got, got to Berlin, there was no surplus place there's a little bit at this one big national electronics chain uh -huh. called conrad electronics but um the surplus part was a little corner in, on one of this parts of the store and couldn't get very much there so the other option was to go to the flea market where there was a little bit of stuff but it was all very unpredictable so okay. meanwhile through a friend uh, we connected with a Dutch artist who lived in Berlin called Bastian Maris. Okay. And when we hooked up with him, we'd been searching for him for several months um, on the recommendation of a friend of ours, Barry Schwartz, from um, the West Coast, um, San Francisco area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in those days in East Berlin, people did not have telephones. So you couldn't track someone down. You, there were no right. phone numbers right. to call. Right. You just had a name and no address. <laughs> love it. Love it. Yeah. So you just kind of asked around. But at that time, we were still meeting people. So, you know, right. you only could. Anyway, we ended up going to this opening of um, some media art stuff. And we sat down at this table. The TV tower. I don't know if you know Berlin, but yeah, sure. You know the TV tower in central East Berlin, right? The Fernsehturm. Yeah. Turm. Well, they, um, in those days, you could do an, like an art exhibit there of experimental okay. art because it was East Berlin. Okay. Nothing was going on, right? Man, and and yeah. the East Berliners didn't really know what to do with all their stuff, <laughs> and it was a combination of the younger scene in East Berlin and then the West Germans, but then a lot of international people, but not nearly as many as there are now. Like in those days, there was maybe 500 people based in okay. Mitte in Berlin doing right. the alternative art scene. Now there okay. are hundreds yeah. of thousands, yeah. right? It's, yeah, so, exactly. But about 500 people. So anyway, someone had organized this thing at the Frenzy Tour. Other friends of ours who we had met knew about it. So they said, oh, there's this opening Friday night. Let's go to the Fernsehturm. And then you went up the elevator and you're up in the uh, 
the globe up there with the revolving oh, restaurant. Crazy. Right. Amazing. They had some pieces up there. And then we ended up just sitting at this table and this Bastien was sitting across from us and we're talking. Someone else is mentioning something about we're from Canada. Yeah. And then he's listening to us and then someone said funny farm or something. And Bastian's like, funny farm. You guys know Barry Schwartz? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, are yeah. you Bastian? <laughs> okay. Awesome. <laughs> We've been looking awesome. for you for three months. Yeah, that's how it <laughs> works. Months. That's how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, anyhow, that was a long story, but we connected with Bastian. Bastian knew where to get all the electronic stuff out of the garbage for free. And he's went. that, but that's why you're. Is this why you're fi- trying to find him for three months? Because yeah. he's a great garbage. He's just like a exactly scavenger. Yeah, because you couldn't buy the stuff anywhere. But you th- this isn't why you're free in- if you knew where to go. This is part of why you're in Berlin, but th- this is like a sidebar for why you're really there. Right? Yeah, like this is a, a weird detour that you take that ends up being like right. a, 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 gold, a gold mine of beauty. Yeah, right? but yeah. and then the project that came out of it, which was the glowing pickle, ended <laughs> up being much more of an art project than than we had. We didn't realize yeah. that the art scene would take it more seriously than they did, um, okay. which they did. Um, yeah, but. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, what happened was that's cool. Um, we had a van. We had bought one of the first things we did when we got to Germany was we bought a used Volkswagen transporter Volkswagen van. All right, all right. And um, so we had the vehicle. Bastian did not have a vehicle. We had a vehicle, okay. but Bastian knew where to get all the shit, and Man. Bastian had free space as well. So. Okay. Um, Bastien had a, awesome. had a loft in East Berlin. We were living in West Berlin because part of the DAD grant was you got a free apartment for a year, sure. but all the apartments in those days were in West Berlin. Okay. So anyway, we lived in West Berlin, um, kind of a fancy apartment. You couldn't really drag a lot of garbage in there. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But Bastien had a loft in East Berlin, and he was telling us, we, and so we, he said, oh, you got a van. Let's go tomorrow to pick up some stuff. Okay. We'll go to the university. Most of the yeah. stuff was at the East German Humboldt University uh, oh, science wow. department. And and what kind of stuff? Like what kind of garbage are you talking about? It's not. It's like computer parts. Well, uh, beakers. Yes, but East German computers. So. Right. <laughs> right. Know. Man. Right. Uh, what much more interesting was all the laboratory equipment. So <laughs> if you imagine, okay, the entire country of East Germany um, had to retrofit everything to become Western technically compatible. Right. 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 So at the time of the wall coming Holy down, shit. The only connection between the two countries, all the connections have been severed after the war. The only connection was maybe a hundred telephone lines that went wow. from east to west. That was it. No trains connected. The roads no longer didn't connect. Um, the bridges weren't connected. Um, everything yeah. kind of yeah. stopped at the border and then you went across and then you were on the east side and then. It, yeah, yeah. So all the technology, of course, was Soviet compatible. Right. Yeah. 
Right. So a very uh, <laughs> low, you, low you tech, might, it, let's say. It, it's a museum. It, you created a museum. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, but that evolved gradually over the course of a few months. So we started out, um, this would have been, I'm trying to remember, roughly October of 92. We met that okay. we started collecting this stuff. We could put a bunch of it in. I had a studio in um, Kreuzberg, which I didn't use very much because of the other end of town from where we were living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in any case, I had that studio. It was free. It was all came with the grant. So we just started putting stuff in there as, as a storage. And then Fashan says a couple of months later, he goes, oh, I've been watching these guys at the front of my mm, building because mm, it was like mm. this laneway and he's in the back alley in his mm -hmm. loft building but the laneway there's a, a bunch of uh, ramshackle garages mm -hmm. going out towards the street and at the front was you know maybe a s six or seven hundred square foot more than just a garage more of a workshop space but these guys repaired trabant cars they were, they were east german car mechanics wow of course, the Trabant was just going out, right? It was, you know, right. people right. could not get rid of the Trabants fast enough to get the Western car. This is a real, a real moment that you're painting. Yeah. So anyway, right? these guys yeah. who ran, who repaired Trabants, basically were just giving up. So uh -huh. Bastian, I guess, had been talking to them, and they kind of told them roughly, "Yeah, I think we're going to move out of here." Sebastian's mm -hmm. telling us, I'm keeping my eye on those guys. As soon as they mm -hmm. move out, I'm putting a padlock on the door and I'm taking it over. I said, well, right. I said well, you can uh, just do that? He goes, of course, yeah, right. of course you can. Right. And he's from Fucking Holland, yeah. right? Like he's from Amsterdam. There's a long right. tradition of squatting in Amsterdam. Wow, those wow, guys wow, have wow. down to a, an art. Wow. That's amazing. The first step is to put a padlock on the door so no one else can get in unless they break right break it open. Of course, at that time, uh, there's a lot of empty spaces in East Berlin because people had fled to the West. Mm -hmm. They weren't going to be patient enough to sit around for 10 or 15 years waiting for the East to begin to rebuild. Right. They were going to enjoy it while they could, still could go to West Germany and uh, hook up with relatives there and reestablish himself. So, mm. so there's a lot of abandoned apartments, abandoned spaces. Um, mm. We knew people who um, just took over apartments. Wow. What you did wow. was you walked around at night and any apartments, the lights, you keep observing this for over a period of maybe a week or two. You see that apartment, yeah. those lights are not coming on. That's apartment's been moved out of and no one has moved in. Right. You figure mm. out a way to kind of break in. We never did it ourselves, but we know people who did. Yeah. yeah. Break yeah. in and then you just move in. And then, um, you know, the, the buildings, the owners of the buildings, no one knew who they were because yeah. a lot of these buildings have been confiscated by the Nazis in the thirties uh -huh. from Jewish people. So uh -huh. the, and the, of course, the, the whole tumultuous, of the East German um, government 
Yeah. They have higher priority things to do than to figure out who's living and who owns what building. Yeah. Yeah. They had yeah. to rebuild yeah. their country. They had to try to survive. Yeah. They had, they had bigger to, fish to fry. Yeah. yeah, yeah try yeah. to prevent the loss of more jobs. So, because yeah. the unemployment yeah. rate was, you know, 20 or 30% and everything was shutting down and it was a disaster. Holy shit. So, the last thing, the last priority was finding out yeah. who the rightful the best, owner yeah. of the building. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you took, you could take advantage of that for a number of years by simply. Were, were you, were you out there in Berlin to study? Did you say? No, was I was a, there to do projects as an artist. Okay, yeah. it was like an artist in residence, exactly. but but they, okay. Yeah. So so this is part of that. This kind of just is a sidebar to that. This whole yeah. This was an unplanned thing pickle. that developed. Uh, so, okay, just back to the glowing pickle. So what happened was Bastian took this workshop space over at the front of his building. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then um, he started putting stuff in there. And he was a little bit, at that time, a little bit protective of that. He wanted it to be his space and this. And we kept collecting more and more stuff. And then we said, Bastian, we're running out of space to put all this stuff. And um, rightfully, it's our um, collaborative ownership, right? Like we're all picking it up together. So, squatters, you know, right? Yeah, we could. Yeah, yeah, we could separate it in different parts. Me, Laura, and Bastian, the three of us, or yeah. we could just say, "Well, we'll keep it all together, and we'll yeah. we'll use it as a resource for ourselves to do projects when we need something." Oh, transformer, okay, motor, okay. some cable, whatever. Yeah, and we'll yeah, just yeah, mutually yeah. agree that anyone can use whatever they want from it. Wow. As long as they're going to do an art project with it. And it cool. was acceptable to the cool. other people. That's good, fun. good, good rules. Yeah. It was good kind rules. of like, you know, socialistic yeah. approach. So, yeah. Very, very. So anyway, so yeah. then that space started to get completely full. So then I said, Hey, Bastian, listen, let's open a surplus store. Fuck. And he's like, like modeled after the after the Toronto one, yeah, like kind of. In yeah. that- and Bastian had been around. He'd been spent a lot of time out in in the Bay Area, and so he there's a lot of surplus out there at that time. Okay. So he was okay. fully, you know, versed with the whole concept of a surplus store. And I said, you know, we can just do we'll just do it one night a week. We'll um, see if anyone wants to buy any of this stuff from us, and. Um, Meanwhile, we'll sell beer, uh, mm-hmm. so we'll uh, we'll actually make a minimum amount of money guaranteed by just selling beer, and uh, so it'll be worth our while to to do this one night a week. So um, we started just we just started doing it, and uh, My God, word just gets around. Awesome. Right? It's just word of mouth. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a venue all of a sudden. All of a sudden, it's a venue, and people are showing up. And then we start really, hey, this Fuck is a lot man. of fun. Let's do an auction at midnight. And then let's do, um, let's get all these machines hooked up, and let's oh, make something yeah. happen with all this stuff. And then oh and we'll God. play some music. We, we weren't DJing, but we had cassette tapes. So DJing with cassette tapes. And um, then we had the huge paper shredder that we had found. Um, so then we had found all these ties, neckties. So then we started 
You're beautiful. Yeah, so then we'd have an auction. We'd say, included with the person who wins the auction, you also get a free shredded tie. But it's not pre-shredded. You have to put it on, and then we shred it while you're wearing it <laughs> into the shredding. Uh, as we do. As we do. That's incredible. That was pretty funny. So th- it became this performative um, surplus store. Is it is it still around? No, no, no. It, that, it lasted about... Um, Two and a half years. That sounds like a special time, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was uh, inevitable that um, it kind of, it, we just stopped doing it at one point because Laura got another big project in 1995 mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. involved um, opening up another space. Okay. Which is also a store, um, but well, I mean, I I got that vibe when I when I had the honor of of coming to the Funny Farm of just it felt like being in those spaces and some of them were like filled to the brim with like mannequins and just like it was it it really felt like training for when I would eventually tour in Europe and see some of these German art houses and and art art you know it was as close to the funny farm was on par with that. It was like, it was otherworldly. And, um, yeah, I don't know, man. I just, it's so special. The, these spaces that you've managed to, to be a part of creating, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that just kind of, um, grew, started as a side project that then grew bigger. Um, because, you know, it gets to be popular. You know, people start really, you start collecting an audience. And then all of a sudden you're spending a, a lot of your energy on these projects that you never intended to spend your energy on. Well, you know what? You and I haven't, I haven't done a lot of time together. This yeah. is the most time I've spent with you. And I remember being at the Funny Farm and you saying that exact thing. You just said like, because, you, you know, all of a sudden the Electric Eclectics Festival yeah. is a thing in Canada, in the world. And I don't think you set out to curate a festival. Like that's not your, that's part of what you do. It's a big part of what you do. Yeah. But I mean, you know, all of a sudden well, there you are it, doing it. We, it, it. It was more planned than these other projects I'm talking about, but it came sure. out of the experiences we had in Berlin doing spaces and doing organizing events. Okay. And then okay. saying, well, you know, we wanted to find a way to get back to Canada because yeah. Berlin was changing by the mid 2000s, you know. Sure. It was completely different from what it was in the in the 90s. Okay. And so okay. we were less attracted to staying in Berlin full time. We we right. had a lot of friends there, a lot of things on the go, so we kept a space there for a number of years while we yeah. also relocated back here in Canada and we we started the festival as a as a way of reconnecting to the scene here <clears throat> that we had but, moved away but from. But connecting it, reconnecting it to your scene as well. You're bringing, yeah. you know, all kinds of folks from Germany right. over, right? It's uh, yeah. Uh, that's so well. That came that so it was more planned. You know, um, you're the only guy to do that. You're the only people to do that though. Like that's the, the beauty of what you've brought in that festival, in that space is 
other people you know, do it too. It's uniquely, but... No, it's uniquely you though, is what I'm saying. It's yeah, like, I feel it's... like a lot of the investment of what you've put into it. Well, all the spaces, first of all, that you're describing are attributed to my wife, Laura. That's her yeah. aesthetic. Yeah. I just kind of go along with it and we work together when it, okay. when it works. Okay. But uh, so I kind dynamite. of, I kind of, uh, we both created the festival along with Chris Warden, who was yes. founding director. Shout out to Chris Warden. So there's right really on, the right three on. of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. To get the thing up and running and um, curating it. And Chris did a lot of that work. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we learned as mm-hmm. we went along, but we were, Laura and I were using the experiences we had in Berlin to begin to create this over here. And, uh, awesome. awesome. So, um, yeah, it just, uh, started, started rolling and, um, it's really just the pandemic that stopped it from happening Fuck, right but now. It, well, I mean, I know you had the spasms doing some stuff you've yeah. been like, you've been doing something, you've been remaining yeah. as relevant yeah, as you can. I mean, I've been doing the online concerts, yeah. which has been a yeah. way of keeping our yeah. visibility out there and connecting yeah. internationally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So good. that's been good. a good um, development during the COVID time. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah. but uh, you know, if it wasn't for COVID, we would have done, festival last summer and we would have been right. in the thick of planning the one coming this summer this but, coming yeah, um man. yeah yeah so anyway um yeah. but but um you know one, one thing i want to touch on when we talk about that special festival the electric eclectics festival and when i started i worked in ottawa for a couple of years and i started to hear the name mark monahan yeah, that's my brother. And, and i i tied the two together and i went you you're shitting me yeah Mark Monahan running the Ottawa Blues Festival, one of the biggest, arguably, you know, music festivals in in Canada. And here's Gordon Monahan, like this seemingly uh, like the the evil kooky brother doing like the funny farm on the other side of Ontario. Like, how does that work? What's uh, what our family? Mark is uh, (laughs) the main person who talked me into doing this festival how cool is that that's fucking awesome to hear yeah yeah um and he helped uh me get organized with what grants we were going to apply for i've always wondered about this i've just always wondered like i either thought it's got to be some kind of weird cain and abel thing or like a, a cool artistic family just flexing its muscle yeah um I mean, Mark started the the festival in Ottawa um, along with Which a group of amazing. his collaborators up there. But he he's been the director yeah. from the very beginning, and he's taken it from being this smaller blues. I'd never experienced something like that. Big, yeah, huge. Yeah, man. Where every everyone's talking about it from uh, you know I, I lived in Ottawa for two years and it was a brief period, but I, whenever Blues Fest came up, old women through to you know young children talking well, about the same biggest thing. Really cultural lands. event yeah. in Ottawa, right? Yeah, it lands on the city, yeah. and there's no escaping it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, he's That's created cool. that. You know, I mean. Yeah, it's it's something. Like, it's uh, very out of, special. Out of nothing, really. Why well, an feel, idea? I feel in, so. Yeah. I feel the same way with with what with your work and in in electric eclectics. I feel 
there's so much in common there, right? Yeah. Just different, totally different styles of music, but you know. Yeah. Well, he's helped us. He's on our board of directors, actually. Oh, that's yeah. nice. That's so nice. really nice. Gives to me hear. a lot of advice. Um, nice. Is he your older brother, uh, Gordon? No, my younger brother younger. by six okay. years. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's special, man. It's special. Yeah. That dichotomy is really beautiful too. And just in terms of, I just see it as part of cultural fabric. Like that's. He yeah, actually, we, we did a few electric eclectics concerts up there. That, that would be the only time I would ever play the Ottawa blues festival. Thanks to you is it, it, because of you. Okay. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Man. I do remember, yeah. Yeah. Uh, recommending Otherwise, you. Yeah. you know, there's right. no other way I'm going to be on a bill with Leonard Skinner. No, but that was, no. And oh, so, man. yeah, but we were doing, um, because they moved it all over to the war museum, um, yeah. location, yeah. which had that, um, theater inside the war museum. It's like 120 seat yeah. auditorium. Yeah. And, uh, so he, that was cool. Yeah. So he figured, Oh, how are we going to use this space? So he initially conceived it as presenting local bands in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he suggested that we come up and do a few electric eclectic concerts, which we did. And was that, did I ask you to do yeah. it in there? So you performed yeah. in that theater? Yeah. yeah. yeah it was that awesome. was part of our electric eclectics presents at the auto blues fest, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so cool. Right. It's so cool. Yeah. So um, we, we, yeah. he moved on from that. It didn't go over very a lot of the, I mean, your, your group would have, yeah. would have appealed a lot to the audience in Ottawa, but we were also doing a lot of really way out there yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. with like Larry yeah. Seven and uh, yeah. John Kilduff with his, I remember you that know, yeah, conveyor yeah, yeah. belt thing, uh, exercise right. uh, machine. And, you know, we thought it was hilarious, yeah. but you, it's that, amazing. It's an I easy mean, way to clear out a theater. <laughs> no, no, no. You you did what you had to do. You did what you had to yeah. do. You brought you brought your your flavor. Yeah. You know, and um, I'll. I know we got to go. I could I could go all day here with you. It's so inspiring. I want to thank you for. Um, I I mean I yeah. Just what was it like to connect with someone like uh, Alexander Hake and and that whole scene out there in in Germany before I let you go? Well, we connected with Alex uh, pretty soon after we got there. Because um, we um, did this 18-hour, we did a, a bunch of 18-hour concerts of playing the same music over and over, the Exotic Trilogy. Um, Fucking A. Yeah, so it was um, Exotica. It was uh, Quiet Village, Taboo, and Caravan. And okay. we played these same three songs for 18 hours. And oh, my God. to do that, um, we needed a lot of different musicians who would, play these songs right. with us right right in different group formations because you can do it with djs too which we did you have people djing so in this particular event we did in berlin in 93 uh we did it at a space which was a squat performance space in east berlin called uh, uh-huh. im eimer and they had um two different spaces they had a larger space downstairs on the ground floor and then a lounge performance bar space upstairs and then they had like a little movie theater so you could do you could have each space different performers all playing the same music okay so awesome you know and um anyway so 
uh, one of the people, a Berlin, Berliner who we connected with early on, who was helping us, he was uh, doing the uh, video projections for this event. Um, mm -hmm. And he said, oh, we have to get Alex Hacken involved because I know he's a big fan of Martin Denny and Exotica music. Okay, okay, cool. Okay, so he phoned him up and sure enough, yeah, absolutely, Alex was on board and, and he came ah. and performed with us. Um, that was how we first met. And then, uh, yeah. you know, we'd just been in touch over the years and um, mm. we did some recording in the Neubauten studio once and we performed on some... Um, concerts that Alex had curated. And so we had this casual uh, connection with the mm -hmm. both both professional and, uh, and uh, social with mm -hmm. Alex. And uh, so that was the that was how we mm. connected. And so then when we started electric eclectics, he was really more than pleased to come over with Danielle, his wife. Yeah. And, as you know, they perform together. Yeah, and we've had them here three or four times. Over uh, that's amazing. Yeah, over 15, it's amazing. Fourteen years, so yeah, they love it coming here because it's a great place to come to get out of Berlin in the summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they yeah. come over here yeah. and spend a few weeks. And oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. Awesome, man. Well, uh, where, where do you go from here? How are you like, um, what's, what's cooking on your end? What are, what are you planning? I have as, a project as in coming this? up in a few weeks, uh, at the museum in Guelph, yeah. which is going to be an installation piece, which is going to run for about four or five months. Okay. Uh, as an exhibition. Um, so you live in Kitchener, Water? I'm in Oakville. Pardon me? Yeah, I'm, cl I'm close enough. I'm in Oakville. Right. I'm close enough yeah, to, so, to, to Guelph. Guelph so. has a civic museum. So it's a mm -hmm. um, local history museum. Okay. And uh, they have this collection of all these artifacts. So I'm um, resonifying these artifacts. So I'm, I'm, I'm sending sound <sighs> into the objects and then um, using them to... Um, transform the sound by running it through wow. and picking it up and running it then into other old instruments, really. They're, they're old square pianos from oh, they are. Okay. 18, 1860s. I thought they might have been like tea kettles or things that aren't necessarily musical. Well, the first musical, series but... of objects where the sound is transmitted into are um, metallic resonant uh, objects like there's a, a crib, a metal baby crib. Oh, there's cool. An old mattress, cool. uh, an old uh, spring mattress. There's some yeah. old farm equipment, um, things that have springs and are metallic. So those are yeah. very good um, material elements to um, transform the sound. And, and all uh -huh. of the music is, is piano music. So I'm, I'm composing wow. all this piano music right now. Oh, and then it amazing. goes, it's split into four channels. Um, so it goes into four channels of, of, uh, 
transmission to transform that sound. And then once it's transformed, then it feeds into four additional pianos, which are is what you hear the final sound coming out of. Uh, is this a, can people learn more about this from gordonmonahan.com? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, but uh, or the, yes. what's the, what's the Guelph museum? What's the name of the museum in it's Guelph? It's called um, the Guelph museum. All right, yeah. look it up, friends. The Guelph <laughs> Museum. It'll be up for four months. So, yeah. and can it be checked out in person, or is this going to be an online in experience? Person, in person, uh, okay. By appointment, but probably. There will be yeah. some documentation for sure okay. online, but it is, you know, it's the kind of piece that has to be experienced in the space. Sounds like yeah. it. Sounds like it. You channel. gotta really follow through. It's actually through. an eight channel. Yeah. It's four channels doubled, so it's eight channels of sound around you in the space coming out of objects that are resonating. I, th- I want to ask you. I, it's I'm, a little bit I'm, of a, I'm, and, and I should say, it's very much yeah. technically a takeoff on on the piece Rainforest by David Tudor, because okay, yeah, that's, yeah, that piece dates from the early seventies. Tudor in yep. the late sixties. Started working with transducers, fed into physical objects that then were right, right amplified, and and the most famous piece is called Rainforest. Does nothing to do with this kind of. I guess this this kind of touches on my last question for you, which I wanted to ask earlier, but it kind of fits in here. How do ideas kind of come to fruition for you? Is it is it taking an idea that you might have seen from a, a piece? 30 years ago that that is is there and sometimes developing it or is it being in a space like this museum and going oh there's a mattress yeah that uh yeah that is sort of how this idea came along um i was well it's a combination of things i started to use i mean signal hit when when you're at signal hill yeah look when i'm at when i'm at signal hill i'm not thinking oh i'm gonna fucking put a piano at the top and 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 draw piano wi- wire uh, like a, a string all the way to the bottom, amplify it, and then and then throw it off of the cliff. Yeah. Throw a piano off a cliff. Well, That's... yeah, that was Jesus. in 1988. Um, that came about through the the uh, artistic director of the Sound Symposium, Don Wary, who's sadly yeah. no longer with us. But yeah, uh, yeah. he, was, I had done several projects at the sound symposium in previous years and uh he really wanted me to do this um piece because he'd seen the video of uh versions i had done of that piece i think in uh in edmonton in 86 and anyway he said we've got to do this in uh, st john's and uh i have a perfect Mm -hmm. location for you it's up on signal hill it really was. I said, okay, sounds good. I said, the biggest question is how are we going to get the piano up there? I never knew. Yeah. yeah he said, well, how did you? Well, you, you got to see one of the guys who worked at the sound symposium. His brother was a helicopter pilot for, oh, uh, for the Coast Guard. And, uh, this is like a Fellini film. All of a sudden, right. I'm, I thought it was going to be like a Salvador Dali. Someone pulled it up. Well, you're saying that was plan helicopter. B. That was plan <laughs> B was to get brute force, get four strong guys and carry yeah. it up. You know, holy. Uh, 
but that's less exciting than carrying out by wow. helicopter. Uh, so um, it had to be done secretively. Yeah. Now this is um, thirty oh, some shit. years later. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not as sensitive to let this out as it would have been yeah, at that yeah. time, because yeah. the Coast Guard is not supposed to be carrying helicopters. Oh right, around. hauling pianos. Yeah, they're yeah, very right, much right. Uh, obligated to rescue uh, people right. at sea. Right, right, um, right. So oh, they can't. Like that. It cannot be known. Uh, publicly that this happened um and it had to be done at like 6 a.m sunday morning when most people yeah. would be asleep they wouldn't see it yeah, yeah. because I wish you I could see seen the that. thing clearly from downtown st john's what an image that must have been oh There's my video, god uh, online okay okay is there yeah, yeah it's called piano, of the piano it's called piano airlift all right friends it's on youtube Look it up. Look it up. This is exciting. My night just got a little more exciting. Yeah. Um, man, you, you're a beautiful human. What do you feel like the state of weird is right now in Canada? Are we doing all right or, or, yeah. or, or, or are we in trouble? Well, you know, I mean, there's way more of it going on all the time. Uh, yeah. I'm talking about, you know, experimental music, <clears throat> sound yeah. art and alternative media art. Uh, yeah. If you go back to, uh, you know, when I started in the late 70s, yeah. 1980, um, so few people doing it. Yeah. Which was uh, a good a plus and a minus, you know. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about the phone call. There, but the no, I love it. I love, the, I love that. Teleborg is uh, making herself, yeah. she's coming, uh, she's busting but, into the show. But, here. Uh, you know, the, the great thing about the scene back in the late seventies and early eighties was there was a lot going on. The audience was very small, yeah. but yeah. yeah, there was proportionally more funding and funding okay. would go along, go much further than, than it does now, you know, just because of yeah. the value of what inflation sure. has done. And sure. you, know, you could do a, a gig for 200 bucks back then. It would be a pretty decent fee, you know? Right. Um, right. right. So, you know, I just saw some incredible stuff at the, mm -hmm. uh, the music gallery. You know, like the music yeah, gallery yeah. now is a shadow of its former self. It, sure. In those days, sure. it was the hub. Sure. Because they right. had a permanent right. space that was 24-7 accessible. Yeah. They had a yeah. great studio. They had a space you could, if you, if you uh, became a member of the music gallery, which cost very little. I can't remember what mm -hmm. it was. It was... 30 or 40 dollars a year maybe for a membership mm. and then mm. you could book the studio space to yeah. record in yeah. for like five dollars an hour or something I, it was just ridiculous that's and, cool, man. Uh, cool to hear stories like that yeah you no know, because it was it was subsidized obviously by right, right. by the canada council right. and our interior arts company sure. but but um it was a it was a great space and they had great programming and I saw some amazing performances there and mm. uh, it connected the Toronto scene to the international scene, you know, they yeah. brought over yeah. a lot of people from Europe. They brought people up from the States, brought people from around the world to perform there. Yeah. And um, 
it was great for those people. It was great for the scene in Toronto that you got to see that. Yeah. And, yeah. um, yeah, you know, so like there was a much smaller scene, but there was a lot going on. Nice. And, yeah. Nice. No, I listen, the glimpse you've given us into, uh, into some of this from the music gallery through to early nineties, Berlin, uh, uh, thank you, man. I'm. I feel so lucky well, to uh, to have spent some time here with you. And thanks for my sharing. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to talk to you too. Finally, we did it. So yeah. uh, take so, take good care, man. I I hope we see more of each other. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's good to connect with you again. Likewise, GordonMonahan.com for all things Gordon Monahan. Thanks again. You take care. Thank you. You too. Yeah. Bye. Bye, Gordon. Okay, bye. Bye. Hey, thanks again, Gordon, for making time to be on the podcast. Look up Gordon's work at, at as I mentioned earlier, gordonmonahan.com. Shout out to Mark Monahan as well, uh, his brother doing great work. And I learned a lot there uh, out in Ottawa on the Ottawa Blues Festival. So the Monahan family doing doing the good work. And to learn more about the podcast, subscribe uh we've got tons of awesome artists coming up i'm so excited to share them with you go to friendlyrich.com you can of course tweet us at industry tactics and find us on facebook and other platforms as well i'm friendly rich and we'll see you again soon on industry tactics take care everyone and be safe